G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, our weekly half-hour radio show, summarising the best of the week's interviews. Now, as you know, here at Constant Investor, we've been on about the digital revolution for quite a while. That is, the changes being visited upon investing and life by such things as artificial intelligence, automation and blockchain. But there's another revolution going on at the same time, a demographic one. The results of the census came out this week, clearly setting out the impact of the doubling of Australia's immigration from 100,000 to 200,000 per year a decade ago. And also the shift in spirituality. The most popular single religion in Australia now is no religion at all, up from last place 50 years ago. And there are profound and important shifts in the age profile of the population. Now, as we know, the population is ageing, and that's led to a boom in aged care and retirement villages. And at the same time, the consumption preferences of millennials, basically people in their 20s and early 30s, are taking over. Now, there are two aspects of this trend worth focusing on this week. First, Adele Ferguson's produced a devastating investigation of listed retirement village operator Aveo Group for Four Corners on the ABC and Fairfax Media. And second, Macquarie Group's Jason Todd has investigated what the millennials mean. In this week's Talking Finance, we talk to both Adele and Jason, and we also find a cheap and easy way to invest in the United States. But first, Adele Ferguson. Now, if you missed Four Corners this week, it's worth a look, but if you haven't got time, here she is. I asked her what she thinks the results of her investigation is likely to be. I think the industry is now being put on notice that the model needs to be fixed. This exit fees reaching 40% after two years, it's just way too much. I personally think the exit fees need to be looked at altogether. There was a report in 2007 conducted by the federal government into aged and, and housing. There was a chapter on retirement villages and it had a list of recommendations. And one of them was that the ACCC should step in and have a look at whether exit fees should be banned. And there were a lot of other recommendations, including an ombudsman, that if state legislation isn't working, have a look at whether it should become corporate law. So there were really significant recommendations made. And then the Rudd government came to power and this report just got shelved. So I think that this might be a catalyst to revisit it. There was a, an inquiry in Victoria earlier this year into retirement villages, and it got almost 800 submissions. So there's, it's a real hotbed of unrest here. These people haven't had a voice. And I do think that there's, there'll have to be a look at exit fees, which is, is really the heart of where these companies make their profit. I heard someone saying this morning that really they're not real estate transactions, they're financial transactions, and they should be regulated by ASIC. Do you think that's correct? I do think that's correct because when they're actually selling these and pricing them, they're factoring in how old people are. You know, so Aveo, even in its own presentations, talks about a target turnover of 10 to 12% a year. And it says, you know, the average age in these villages is 82.3 years. So it's a bit like a life insurance policy. The purpose of the exit fees is what they call deferred management fees, right? What the implication of that is, is that the management fees on an ongoing basis would be higher if they didn't have uh, the exit fees at the end. Do you think that's a reasonable case to put? 
No, I don't, because if you look at the, the contracts now, we've got a contract from Sandringham and Cheltenham, and the maintenance fees per week are over $400 per week. So why are you then paying $600,000 for a one-bedroom unit in one of these villages and uh, and a 40% exit fee after two years? We got an actuary to actually calculate what what that means for an 82-year-old that moves out after two years. It means they're paying the equivalent of $13,300 a month in rent. You know, how is that a sustainable model? Therefore, and as it gets back to the start of the, uh, our discussion here, the profits of the industry are not sustainable either. No, I don't think so. It's gouging. And I think when the deferred management fees first came in decades ago, it was designed to, it was the cost of building a, vi- a village and they would offer a discount to the price of a unit and so you'd pay at the end. But that really doesn't count anymore because a lot of these villages are 20 or 30 years old and they just keep on turning them over and they're paying hefty maintenance fees every week. So I just don't understand why you have this even heftier exit fee. Sarah Ferguson, at the end of your report on the Four Corners, said that you'd asked Aveo to come on or to respond and they declined. But they put out a long, a 20-page statement yesterday... Yes. In response to your story, have you read that? And what do you think of their statement? Yes, what it was is we asked them for an interview weeks ago and it took them a week to get back to us and say no. So then I asked, could I have a statement and could they answer 30 questions? And uh, they answered the questions and that was 19 pages of answers and that's what they released to the stock exchange. And what's your response to their answers? They're saying that the Aveo contracts, the Aveo way contracts are much simpler and give more certainty. But I would disagree with that. They're still extremely long and I don't know whether you've looked at their page on exit fees. Raphael Epstein, who's the ABC commentator, was saying that he's done third year maths at university and he couldn't make heads or tails of it. And that's their new simplified contract and it's a 35% exit fee after three years. And it's got lots of clauses in that are confusing. So I would disagree with that. They say they're not the most aggressive. I would ask them to tell me which other uh, retirement village operator has exit fees of more than 40%. What's your advice to people who are thinking about going into a retirement village? Don't do it? I'd have to say I would certainly not put my father into a retirement village. It's just... You know, I just don't know what you're getting. You know, I would think if you're going to sell down your house, buy a unit on the ground floor and get it assessed and get help. Get someone to come in and help you and spend $20 a week or a month on an emergency pendant because what else do you need? What else are they giving you? The full interview with Adele is this week's Spotlight and can be found on our website. Now, let's switch to the other end of the age scale. Millennials. I read Jason Todd's report on the subject with a growing sense of recognition. I've got three of them. And, well, he's right. I started by observing in our interview that the younger generation always does things differently. I certainly did when I was a millennial age, and so did my parents. So does the business world always get caught short? 
that's a question that we've been asked quite a lot. And part of this is I think the digital age has to some extent empowered the millennials to actually be able to communicate and express their views probably at a lot younger age than what we traditionally might have. And I say we traditionally because I'm not within the millennial age group might have in the past. The point that we want to make though is is that there is a lot of judgment on the characteristics of millennials. And in fact, what we need to sort of do is put this aside and actually just evaluate this cohort on the fact that they are already the largest part of the working population and they will be the largest part of the income earning economy for Australia. And I think that what we really want to try and emphasise here, because every generation has its issues, every generation sort of has its problems, but I think that part of what we're trying to really just iterate here is that this group of the population is going to become significant uh, and it already is significant. But part of where uh, we think that the story is being missed when we think about the overall picture is uh, it's not just millennials that are going to be important because when this cohort becomes or actually gradually drifts to become the not the largest part of the population, you've got Gen Z following up. And so by 2030, you've essentially got just under 60% of the working population that would have been born in the digital age. So regardless of whether it's millennials or the generation that's coming after them, they have some very uh, strong tendencies. You've kind of identified a number of characteristics, but is there one overall thing that you highlight above all? Is it the fact that they've been born in the digital age and therefore are entirely comfortable and have lived their lives with um, digital devices such as smartphones? Is that, do you think that's the, that's the overriding characteristic? Look, I think that's important because it's helped with the spreading much more quickly of trends and these sorts of things. But I think that the points that we would make around their characteristics is that they are very much experienced over materialism. We would say that this concept of peak stuff has already been hit. Just explain that, peak stuff. Tell me about that. So we would say that the prior generations, and this is probably the baby boomers and Gen X, have essentially been quite material in their possessions, i.e., TVs, furniture, handbags, etc. This is not a generation that is focused on these things. So they're very focused on actually uh, life experience over materialism. Part of that is also a function of the fact that this is the best educated cohort that we've had in history. So on average, they are more educated than every other generation that's come before them. Part of it also is the fact that affordability for housing globally has been an issue. So a lot of the large purchase decisions have been pushed back, but they're very much into the wellness economy, into sustainability, And in fact, the surveys are telling us that outside of compensation, that in fact, career development and workplace flexibility are very important for this generation. And again, the point that we're trying to make here is that it's not that this generation is trying to actually tell business owners and corporates how to run their business. It's simply that they will be the largest part of the workforce. Well, they already are now, but they will become an even bigger part of the workforce in 10 years time. So you're going to have to provide some of the things that this generation is actually desiring in terms of uh, of their workplace. You also talk a lot about um, smartphones. You've investigated that quite a lot. Tell us about what you found there and, and what the significance of the uh, use of smartphones is. Well, look, I think that Australia is already particularly penetrated in the developed world in particular is 
pretty penetrated in terms of smartphones. But essentially, what this is at now driving is that anyone who doesn't have an app on a smartphone, so it's more probably software now, is going to get left behind. And that might sort of apply right through either banking or online purchasing or planning holidays or anything like that. I think that there was some survey which was showing something like 90% of millennials would prefer to lose their sense of smell than their smartphone, which might sound quite ridiculous, but in fact, it's attached to people now and it is a very important part of just everyone's daily lives. And we actually think now that essentially you're going to live and die by being able to operate all of your daily lives on your smartphone. What do you think that means for businesses? I mean, you've got to be on the smartphone. Do you have to change your business in order to achieve that? Or do you think Australian businesses in particular are ready for that? Look, I think that there are going to be some significant sort of change over the next decade or two decades into becoming uh, more adaptable for online. I think that businesses here recognise that. Part of it has been... You know, simply that at this stage they have not needed to. But going forward, do I think that there is significant investment that needs to be done in terms of actually being able to provide seamless business on your smartphone? Yes. Uh, for some, it's not going to be particularly relevant. Uh, for others, it will. But, you know, we've seen to some extent various processes which can now be done on smartphone from banking through to wealth management, etc. But I think that what's going to happen here is that this next generation is not looking for a lot of detail in terms of particular processes on their smartphone, but they're just looking for convenience. And so if you actually offer this convenience, then you're going to be able to tap into this market. It's obvious when you look at Uber and then you look at Uber Eats. There are now those who are, for example, offering ways to actually invest your superannuation through sort of apps on your smartphone. And this is just tapping essentially the convenience factor. So does everything has to be on the smartphone now? I think that it's not everything has to be on the smartphone, but essentially you're probably missing out on a large proportion of the population if you are not doing business that is easily identifiable to those who are looking at their smartphone 10, 20, 30, 40 times a day. We haven't mentioned stocks in this interview yet, but you do mention stocks in the report. Give me a half a dozen winners from the millennials era on the ASX. Sure. I mean, these are obviously structural sort of winners. So in the near term, there are clearly going to be other headwinds and tailwinds for them. But within logistics, we like toll and we don't cover DHL, but that is something which is very much exposed into that. Within sort of the clean and green, uh, we like bingo, um, which is basically recycling of waste. In terms of the insurance side, because millennials will generally have a lower proportion of home ownership, they will not need home insurance like you've previously seen in the past. So we have a preference for corporate insurers over the personal insurers, which ends up being QBE. And sort of within staples, we like those which are exposed into the organic, healthier, low zero sugar options, which is A2 Milk, Blackmores and BWX. That's probably our key sort of areas. On the short side, it becomes easier to identify who is going to come under structural headwinds, which is largely your electronic retailers, uh, your apparel retailers and your staples uh, areas, which have large footprints. There is ongoing pressure, we think, on stocks like Harvey Norman, JB 
maybe Hi-Fi, uh, West Farmers, Woolworths, and within Staplers, Katmandu, Maya. But these are long-dated pressures. As with Adele, the full interview with Jason can be found on the website, so check it out. As a follow-up to Jason, I spoke to the former CEO of Facebook Australia, Stephen Sheila, who now works for PwC as a special advisor to Australian businesses on digital things. And I asked him whether, as a generalisation, Australian businesses are ready for what's coming at them. I'd say generally no, and I, but I think this is true for businesses around the world. I wouldn't just uh, pick on Australia. But speaking of Australia specifically, digital has been around a long time, but I think there's a tipping point we're at now that's been driven by mobile and the rise of mobile around the world over the past few years. And, and this has started to break down the, um, the kind of natural isolation of Australia, the ability for a lot of businesses and industries here to really form um, a kind of uh, competitive duopolies or more relaxed competitive environments because it's harder for overseas players to come in and compete with them. I think that's now changing and uh, changing fast on digital. So it's really mainly about the smartphone. Absolutely. That since the Apple iPhone has been around for 10 years now, we just hit the 10-year anniversary, and there's 2.5 billion iPhones or, or smartphones in the world today, Apple phones and Android devices. There's another 2.5 billion other phones in the world, mobile phones. And over the next few years, those other 2.5 billion will all convert over to smartphones. So essentially, the rise of mobile has changed the way people access the internet. And it's brought a whole new range of possibilities in terms of products and services and platforms that you can offer to consumers around the world. And it's really broken down these former global barriers that distance and geography used to put up. And would you go as far as to say that every business now needs to be on smartphone in some way, have an app, uh, and if they're not, then they're left behind? Absolutely. Particularly if you're consumer-facing, it's, it's as important as any other aspect of your business to be able to reach those consumers on mobile. If you're a more B2B-focused business or more industrial business, even there, the people you want to reach, the customers, the other businesses, they're conducting more of their business and their time on mobile. So you definitely need to have a strategy to reach them on mobile as well. In general, how do you think investors should approach this question of mobile and apps and smartphones? I think if you're investing in a business or considering investment in a business, I think you need to consider how is mobile disrupting that particular business or that industry? And what are the threats and the opportunities that mobile is presenting today and are going to present over the next couple of years? And some of this disruption happens very quickly. I point to Uber again and how quickly that has disrupted traditional industries like the taxi business. You know, we, we've all sat in a cab and, and heard the, the stories of the cab driver who the value of his, his business has plummeted over the past few years because of the entry of Uber. Now, this is starting to happen across the board. Many businesses are being affected by mobile competitors that couldn't be imagined a few years ago. So I think from an investment perspective, you need to start to understand in terms of mobile and data and digitally enabled competitors, what are the threats and opportunities that are going to affect that industry that you're looking to invest in? It feels like it's mostly threats. You know, everything's got a, uh, a plus and a minus, Alan, in business and in competition. The truth is, I think in the long term, for consumers, it's definitely mostly upside. And in terms of the businesses that are going to win out of this, the opportunity is exciting because I think it opens up new markets globally to Australian businesses. And it also opens up new ways of delivering value and creating value for consumers in ways that couldn't have been done a few years ago. And I'll give you an example there. When I was uh, running Facebook, one of our biggest advertisers at Facebook over the past few years was a 24-year-old fitness instructor from Adelaide 
named Kayla Itsenis. Many people don't know who Kayla is, but she's actually the biggest fitness personality in the world on Instagram, and she has millions of followers throughout the world. But more importantly, she's monetized that opportunity, and she's done it through Facebook and Instagram, where she spends essentially 100% of her advertising. And she has spent some you know, considerable sums on Facebook and Instagram to drive her business, which is now, by independent estimates, worth well over $100 million. And you know, she's built that business over the past three, four years, a small group, and really leveraged the platform that Facebook and Instagram brings to her to reach a global audience. Three, four, five years ago, she would have never been able to do that. She would not still be you know, a fitness instructor in North Adelaide running a, a small personal training business. Now she has a $100 million global business, and it, it's all because of mobile. I asked you at the start about whether Australian businesses are kind of aware or ready for this, and you kind of said, well, it's the same for everybody around the world. I'm, I must say I challenge you about that. I mean, I don't think Australian companies, Australian CEOs, have any idea about that fitness instructor in Adelaide and what's going on. I would agree with you on that. I think there's many parts of the mobile and tech and digital revolution that are definitely um, – unknown to the business leaders here in Australia, as they are to many, in many countries. And it's not because they're not great leaders and they haven't done uh, amazing things and created value for themselves and for shareholders. It's simply because the rise of mobile has been so quick. In just the past few years, these ecosystems have been created, global ecosystems, in a way that we couldn't even imagine. Ten years ago, there were no smartphones on the planet. And now there's whole business models that are built up around them. They're probably still using the phone to talk on. Exactly, you know, which which will be there for a long time. As you travel around, do you find many CEOs with an Instagram account, for example? Uh, not as many as I think there should be. You know, interestingly, when you talk to CEOs and boards, uh, often when you talk about mobile or social media or, or the digital revolution, they refer to their families, they refer to their kids. And often, if they're a male, they'll refer to their partners, their wives, and how the use of Facebook and mobile is just so dominant amongst that generation and amongst their partners who are obviously staying in touch with the world in a different way than they do, you know, coming to work every day and running their businesses. Right. I wonder about the extent to which that is actually penetrating them. I think slowly the message is getting through. Myself and others are doing a lot of work to help Australian business, small business and large business get on board and deal with the threats and opportunities that the rise of mobile presents. I must say, I think the arrival of digital overseas players in this market in a big way, such as Airbnb and Uber and Amazon, you know, that has definitely raised more awareness, I think, in the boardrooms of Australia about the power of mobile and these platforms, the threats and the opportunities for their business. Now, investing offshore can be expensive and difficult. The brokerage is often horrendous. And then there's the obscure foreign exchange fees and spreads. Most people give up and stay with the ASX, which is fair enough, except that it hasn't been a winning strategy for a while. Well, we've come across a possible solution, a Sydney-based startup offering free brokerage on the S&P 500 stocks. It's called Stake, and they're making money from a 0.7% once-off fee on the foreign exchange transaction. That is, if you leave the money in the US dollars, you don't have to pay that again. The CEO is Matthew Leibovitz. I'll let him explain how it works. We actually like to think of ourselves as more of an e-commerce site that happens to um, have U.S. equities on it for people to buy and sell. So we we allow people to access U.S. equities more simply and affordably than before in in an e-commerce experience. Well, in fact, it's so affordable it's free, apparently. Uh, Yes, from August, we're going to have around 500 stocks, the S&P 500 or thereabouts, that people will be able to um, 
access to zero brokerage. Will that include the stocks on NASDAQ or not? Uh, a few of them, the ones that cross over, yeah. We haven't decided exact 500 as yet, but it'll include, it'll definitely include some of those. Why is it a limited list of stocks that'll be free brokerage? The way our model works is we actually pay to custody a certain set of stocks. So if we can reduce those, we can pass those costs on to um, our users. That said, the remaining will still be available to users on a subscription basis, which will still be far cheaper than anything else out there that people pay for a trade. So tell us how the subscription works. We're sort of still nutting it out at the moment, but it's probably going to be a monthly fee of around $9, $10 a month, which gives you access to free trading on the um, the remaining 2,800 stocks that we have. I noticed on your site that current brokerage is $5.99 US per trade. Is that going to continue, or once you move to a subscription model, that disappears entirely? Uh, You are still working through that right now with our US partner, but it probably will. And the way you'll make money in addition to the subscription, is through a 0.7% foreign exchange transaction fee. Yeah, so when users transfer their money from their Aussie dollar account, their Macquarie cash management account, into the US brokerage account, they make one transfer. Us and OFX have an API, which is basically a connection which allows them to move their money over by OFX, and we take a little bit of that commission there. Oh, so most of that 0.7 goes to OFX, does it? Well, it's in relation to our agreement between us, yes. We split that between us. But that's a one-off fee. So once you've moved the money into US dollars, you can leave it there and trade in US dollars without any further fees. Is that correct? That's exactly right. There are still some regulatory fees that we pass through to customers. So in the US, there's what's called the SEC and TAF fees that are on the sell side. They're quite small, but um, they'll still be passed through to customers. They're passed directly through to the regulator over there. Can you tell us what they are and how they'll be passed through? I don't know the exact details. I don't have them on me. But the SEC fee is the fee to the actual the SEC, the regulator over there, and the TAF is a, a transaction fee. I don't know the exact numbers, but they're, they're posted on our website. I probably should know them. Okay. So just to be very clear about it, there'll be 500 stocks for which there'll be zero brokerage, and there'll be another 2,300 stocks where they'll come under the subscription. Is that right? Yeah, so it'll be 500 thereabouts, which will be at zero brokerage. So once your money's in the US, you won't pay any brokerage fees on those. And in the 2,800, we've got 3,300 right now, will be available in some shape or form via a subscription model. Right, so the total number of stocks available to be traded is 3,300. That's correct. Yeah, shares and ETFs. Shares and ETFs. And 500 of those won't be subject to any brokerage, but 2,800 will be, and the brokerage will be a subscription rather than a per-transaction fee. Is that right? Exactly right. So it'll be much like Amazon Prime is. We looked at the way the model works, and you know, if we can offer a subscription for a whole year that can be less than the price that a person will pay to trade internationally in Australia, we think that's pretty compelling. Tell us a bit about your business. Who owns it? Uh, it's self-funded. So there's three major shareholders, uh, myself, Dan, who's our COO, and John, who's our CTO. It was funded by ourselves after we saw the problem of trying to basically invest in the bigger, wider world and how difficult it was. So I I lived in in the States. I was working at a trading firm. I was a partner over there in Chicago. I came back and I sort of knew what execution costs would be, and I just looked at Australia and said, well, this is pretty obscene. You you want to go put five, ten thousand $10,000 into Amazon or Netflix when they're really growing and they offer great opportunity and you're 
you're paying two to three percent away just to transact, and the cost of execution is actually zero. So we just thought we could solve that problem for Australians and give them access to something better for a better price. And happy birthday, Robert Forster, who turns the big six zero today. He and Grant McLennan formed the Go-Betweens in 1977 and they produced a lot of really good songs. Perhaps the best of them was this, Streets of Your Town. And don't the sun look good today But the rain is on its way Watch the butcher shine his knife Thanks to my constant team here and to ISM Studios for the music. If you haven't done so already, check out the answers to this week's fund manager question, which was, what impact do you think Amazon will have on the Australian retail sector? Now, you've heard lots of views about this, but the professional fund managers are fascinating. And I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning. Yeah.